Like many Australians, I take our system of superannuation for granted. Ever since I started working, my employer has been adding a portion of my wage into a pension fund, and it's been growing. This system helps Aussies who have a comfortable retirement, but it's also spawned a mammoth financial management industry. Today's guest is Andrew Gray. He's director of ESG and stewardship at Australian Super, which is one of the country's largest superannuation funds. And while Aussie Super manages people's nest eggs, they have the challenging role of planning long into the future. Sustainability isn't optional for them. Sustainability is about long-term thinking and avoiding risks to try and make sure retirement is comfortable, but also that the environment is still in good shape. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. Andrew has been with Australian Super for 10 years, and before that, he was at Goldman Sachs. His long experience has been welcomed on the global stage with his role on the steering committee of the Climate Action 100 Plus Network. We went deep on a few key areas in this conversation. I had so many other questions, but I really wanted to stay focused. I've invited all sorts of investors and business leaders on this show, but after speaking with Andrew, I realize I've missed the perspective of super funds. And so I'm going to work hard to include more voices from these big influential organizations. So let's dive in. All the show notes are on my website at johntreadgold.com. Plus, you can also sign up for my newsletter. It's a roundup of the most interesting news covering sustainable investment and the evolution of finance. And it's a good way to stay up to date on the latest podcast episodes. All right, enough out of me. Here's my conversation with Andrew Gray. Here we go. Andrew, thank you for coming on the show. Yes, hello, John. Nice to be here. Good stuff. Now, look, you've got a very interesting background that crisscrosses so many issues that we discuss here on this podcast. But I'd like to start with your role as Director of ESG and Stewardship at Australian Super. It's one of Australia's largest super funds. And a key role here of yours is engaging directly with companies on all, all sorts of issues. And climate change is obviously a big one. And now we're in a new normal here at the start of 2021. How important is engagement today? Well, it's vitally important, John. So, I mean, ultimately, as a shareholder in companies, we have a range of rights and responsibilities as being an owner. And if we're to deliver the best investment returns for members, we need to maximise those ownership rights and utilise them as effectively as we can. And so the key ownership rights that we have as a shareholder is to engage with company boards, noting that directors are the representatives of the shareholder. And also noting that we actually vote for directors at companies as shareholders. So it's a pretty fundamental responsibility that we have to get the right boards in place at companies. And so that gets back to firstly our voting role. So that's the sort of second key role is to vote. And then once we actually have directors in place at companies, you know, another key role is as a big shareholder is to engage, to really express to the companies what's in our members' long-term investment interests. I mean, I think we find ourselves in a really privileged position at Australian Super to have, you know, over 2 million members and the ability to engage with our investee companies on their behalf, you know, expressing to the companies what's in their interests. 
is a privilege and also something that we want to exercise fully to maximise investment outcomes. Another thing I'd just add to that, John, too, is, you know, you kind of alluded to it in your opening comments. You know, we are in a new normal now, the new normal being that ESG issues are so fundamental to how a business will perform and drive value. And, you know, you've mentioned climate change. So that's obviously one of the most, you know, high profile issues, but a whole range of ESG issues are important for a company to manage its business effectively. And so, you know, a key part of our engagement is to be engaging with companies on those issues to make sure they're managing well and therefore driving value for shareholders. Well, that's right. And superannuation in Australia is such a powerful force, I think more so than many other countries. And I think that that shift, the nature of engagement on this podcast, we speak a lot about the finance sector and investors. We've actually not had many representatives from superannuation funds on here. So maybe just briefly, how do you sort of see your role as the definition really of long-term investors and how that might differ to, you know, a private fund manager that someone like you guys might employ? Yeah, yeah. As a superannuation fund, I guess we've got sort of two key characteristics that sort of feed into this. So the first one is, as you said, we're long-term which means we are concerned about long-term issues, you know, issues that will drive long-term value. You know, so we're representing our members, so our members have retirement timeframes, so they're long-term. So we are very interested in issues that will impact long-term investment outcomes. And I guess the second sort of characteristic as a super fund owner is that ultimately, you know, we are the beneficial owner. So in most cases, we are the actual owner that sits behind the fund manager that historically the company had seen. But it's the superannuation fund who is sort of employing the fund manager in some cases to invest on our behalf. And so the super fund actually sits behind the fund manager as the beneficial owner. And that's, you know, I think what has been a really interesting trend and it's probably been a trend over about 10 years now. So, I mean, I joined Australian Super back in 2011. And what was really interesting back then was that Australian Super had an entirely external management model. So we basically only used fund managers as a means to invest our members' funds. Whereas what's been happening over the last 10 years is we've adopted more of an internalised model where we now actually invest a lot of our funds with our internal process. We've effectively got a fund manager sitting internally within the fund. And why that's so relevant, I guess, is that companies now see us directly as the investor. So they no longer just maybe never see us because they're dealing only with a fund manager. They now see us as the direct owner. And, you know, that's a really powerful dynamic in engagement because, you know, you are the direct owner and companies can see why you're engaging with them because they can see you are the actual shareholder. So I think all that sort of comes together to the point that we're at now where, you know, superannuation funds have sort of realised it's important to be active with their ownership rights to deliver those long-term returns because, A, we want to bring a long-term voice to the table at companies. You know, they're hearing a lot of competing opinions from shareholders, so we want to make sure the long-term voice is represented. And second of all, given that we are now a direct owner, you know, we want to use that direct ownership right as effectively as we can. Look, this long experience of yours, it's been recognised on a global stage. You're now on the steering committee of Climate Action 100 Plus, and you were previously the chair. Can you tell us about this organisation? How does the network facilitate engagement and, and how is the process different to what you do at Aussie Super? Yeah, Climate Action's fascinating path, I guess, that this organisation has been on. So it actually launched back in 2017. And so 
The idea was that a group of sort of large superannuation funds internationally, so Australian Super is the Australian representative, but we've got funds from different you know, regions, so US and Europe and Asia. And I guess the sort of fundamental starting point was we recognised that there was a commonality in our portfolios in terms of the key companies driving emissions were quite common across most investors' portfolios. And so then the question became was, well, how can we most effectively engage with those companies so that they are developing business strategies that are appropriate for the low-carbon transition that needs to occur? The conclusion that we came up with was sort of two things that need to happen. First of all, we need to sort of get a collaborative group of investors together, so kind of amplify the voice. And the second thing we needed to do was develop a consistent ask. And so one thing that I think that we've learned from engagement, probably the most important thing in terms of being effective when engaging with a company is being clear with what you're asking for. And so one of the realisations that we had with Climate Action 100 was if we're going to make progress in terms of engaging with companies on climate change, we need to be really clear with what we're asking. And so Climate Action launched back in 2017. So it's basically formed by five superannuation funds globally, as I mentioned before, of which Australian Super is the Australian representative. And also in each region, there's what we would call the investor network. So in Australia's case, it's called the Investor Group on Climate Change, the IGCC. And basically, they're networks that investors had already formed in their own region as a way to help them manage climate change as an investment issue. So there's five of those networks plus what is called the Principles of Responsible Investment, the PRI, making up the fifth network. So basically, we've got five networks and five super funds as representatives on the Global Steering Committee. And it launched back in 2017, and back then it had three goals or three asks. The first one was emissions, asking companies to reduce emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. The second ask was for improved governance at companies on the way they're managing climate change, not putting the right governance structures to effectively manage it. And the third ask was improved disclosures on the climate change risks and opportunities after the company and how they're managing those. And in particular, and we were asking for what's termed TCFD reporting, which has sort of emerged as the sort of standard way that companies and investors can report on climate change. So, yeah, the effort really was about an amplified voice by getting a large number of investors together and, second of all, being clear with the asks. And back then in 2017, from memory, I think it may have launched with about 150 signatories and now we've got over 550. It's been really pleasing to see that growth and that reflects a couple of things. It reflects the fact that investors have found it a useful avenue to focus their own engagement But I think one of the other sort of pleasing things from it was really how well companies have responded in the sense that they're getting a more consistent ask from investors on climate change. And the result of that is we're actually seeing movements. You know, there's 160 companies that are covered by the focus list, Climate Action 100, and we're seeing, you know, a large number of those, for example, making net zero 2050 commitments. So it's actually really pleasing to see the action that's happening from companies. Yeah, I can appreciate the value of that consistent ask. And I just wonder, is the tangible engagement process with uh, Climate Action 100, is that separate to what you would do with Australian Super or do the two come together? 
Yes, the two come together. And so that's a really interesting question, actually. So a large investor such as ourselves, so we're big enough to have our own voice and we'll use that as effectively as we can. But also we recognise there's value in joining with other like-minded investors to amplify that voice where we can be more effective. And so, look, a a classic example of that would be where we're operating internationally. So, you know, we're a very big investor and a big shareholder in Australian companies, but the size of our voice on international company share registers is a lot smaller. And so this is an example of how we can join with others to amplify that voice. So there's an interesting interplay. It's a constant balance in terms of our engagement program to balance whether we want to engage directly and individually and or engage collaboratively. But, you know, we've got a nice model where we use them both together and sort of leverage off the relative strengths of either when it's useful to do so. The advantage in engaging directly is that you're in the room, the company can see you as the owner. And so, you know, you've got the credibility and the clarity with what you're asking. On the other side, the advantage with engaging with a group of investors is obviously you're amplifying your voice. You know, we just sort of try to balance the two and work with both models as needed. And I think collaboration, it's a rare process among the world's biggest fund managers, but this network seems to have achieved that. How do you manage that? Does it get competitive? I mean, it's an interesting question that in the sense that one of the dynamics I think that actually makes Climate Action 100 successful is there certainly a competitive tension in it. But interestingly, it's not really a competitive tension of, you know, asset owners versus fund managers. I think everyone kind of realises that we're all aligned in the sense that effective climate change management by companies is important to generating investment outcomes. So, I mean, I think the common view, whether you're a fund manager or an asset owner as a signatory to Climate Action 100, is sort of an acceptance that climate change is a genuine investment issue and we're all aligned in getting better company management of that. So there's not a lot of competition between asset owners and fund managers within the initiative per se, but what has happened, which has been really nice, is the structure of the initiative is that basically engagement teams have been formed for each of the focus companies. So the structure is that for each company that's covered by Climate Action 100, an engagement team is formed which has a lead investor and then a sort of a team of support investors. So on average, there's probably eight or 10 investors on an engagement team for each of the companies. And there's actually been a really nice dynamic that's created that of any sort of a bit of a competition, healthy competition across the engagement team. So, you know, as an engagement team, if we see another engagement has made progress, so if at that company they've made a net zero 2050 announcement or they put out a very comprehensive and well-produced climate change report, then as an engagement team on your own company, you kind of reflect on that and say, how did they achieve that? Can we use that sort of model to get more progress on our own engagement? So that's been a really kind of neat dynamic that's built up in the initiative. And I think one of the reasons why that has also worked positively is there's a pretty good culture amongst the initiative to share information. So, you know, where we see that another engagement team has had a success, there's a great culture to reach out to that team and get them to explain how they've done it, you know, share knowledge, share information. And we actually have six monthly webinars where the whole network, all the signatories can actually join a webinar and catch up. And in those webinars, we actually run case studies where, you know, we'll pick five or six of the sort of key 
successes of the initiative over that six-month period and those engagement teams will present that and the, the sort of key lessons that they've learned. So this kind of lesson sharing across the initiative is a really important element of it. You know, by its nature, climate change is a very dynamic area. Climate change science is constantly evolving. You know, the technology pathways that companies have to respond to climate change is constantly evolving. Policy is constantly evolving. So it's a very dynamic space. So as a result, to be successful in engagement, investors need to evolve. We need to be on top of that and evolve what we're asking for, our own knowledge, and, you know, and also our techniques and the way we're going to go about the engagement. And of course, engagement, it's just one tool in the investor's toolkit. How does it align with voting on shareholder resolutions? Does one come before the other? They're linked. So voting and engagement are obviously very strongly linked, where effectively engagement informs our voting. But the way we see it is voting is really an outcome of engagement. As an owner, you know, we've got access to boards. And so the first port of call really is to use that as effectively as you can. So let's engage with the company. And then voting is a technique which we have if we can't get the results that we're wanting from engagement. So engagement very strongly informs voting, but engagement is the starting point and then we'll take what we need to through to our vote as needed. Really appreciated all of those insights. It has really opened it all up. I appreciate it. But looking at some other big news, and that's Australian Super's commitment to uh, net zero emissions by 2050. It's great progress. And just to get everyone on board, can you explain what it means for your portfolio to be targeting net zero emissions by 2050? Yeah, yeah. We're aiming that the portfolio will be generating net emissions by 2050, kind of as the phrase suggests. So across the total portfolio, it will be generating net emissions by 2050. The way we're looking at it is we think it's a really great construct to manage climate change investment risk in the portfolio. So if we kind of go back and look a little bit back through history, we have had a view as an investor for some time that achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement is important to achieve the lowest economic cost solution to climate change. So we have been supporters of the Paris Agreement for some time. Then I guess the sort of step change I think in a lot of people's thinking was in October 2018 when the IPCC released a report and they basically said in that report that if the aims of the Paris Agreement are to be achieved, then the world's economy needs to be generating net zero emissions by 2050. I guess why that's useful is, I mean, if we reflect, for example, on the Climate Action 100 goals, you know, back in 2017, so prior to net zero 2050, being sort of a consensus concept. Our goal then was to ask for emissions reductions in line with Paris. You know, it's a very kind of high level and unclear goal, but it was kind of the best that we had at the time. Whereas the net zero 2050 is a pretty clear construct and a pretty clear ask. You know, it's sort of saying, what does your business strategy look like? How are you going to drive value in an economy that has net zero 2050 emissions? You know, it's an absolute number, it's an outcomes-oriented ask. And that's the way we viewed it for the portfolio. It actually generated an outcome-oriented goal. But most importantly, it's an investment view that we think, well, if that's where the economy is heading, then we need to position the portfolio consistently with that if we're to achieve good 
investment returns. So I think, interestingly, you can almost kind of see it as an economic forecast. You know, we're forecasting a whole range of variables that we need to sort of align the portfolio with those forecasts. And in a sense, net zero 2050 is really an economic forecast. That's where we're expecting the economy is going. And so we need to align the portfolio with that if it's going to be generating the best returns for members. I think the first movers on on the net zero target were probably investors that already had a low carbon screen, right? So it was an easier progression for them, an easier commitment. But you, a large fund manager, you're pretty much a universal owner. You're invested in companies in so many indexes and in lots of industries, especially heavily polluting industries. So what are your strategies for managing some of those companies that are in, you know, the most emissions intensive industries and those that say, you know, they can't run their operations without burning fossil fuels? Obviously, net zero is a balance kind of thing that some will reduce their emissions dramatically and others might not be able to reduce them so much. And and on balance, you'll come back to that net zero. What are some of your tactics there? I mean, I guess the whole point around net zero 2050 is it creates this economic theme where that economic theme is low carbon transition. As an investor across the economy, what we're particularly interested in is what does that transition to low carbon look like across the economy? What are the companies and sectors that have risks and opportunities related to that? And therefore, How can we value those? How can we forecast? How can we value those so that we can make better investment decisions? Once having made that sort of investment decision, the next key role we have is our role as an owner. So as an owner, engaging with the companies that we're invested in to understand that economic transition, their role in it, how they're progressing relative to milestones that they see as important to achieving that. And, you know, as we'd sort of touched on a bit earlier, this space is so dynamic, climate science changing, technology changing, policy changing. Managing climate change in the portfolio is the need to constantly reevaluate and understand what this economic transition looks like. You know, it's a very active process. The way we manage it is to understand that there's a low carbon economic transition happening here and to understand how each of our assets are placed in relation to that. You know, what are the risks and the opportunities that they face? And how are they managing that? You know, the fact that you were brought on in 2011 shows how long this has been, you know, a key issue and thematic focus for Australian super. But, you know, coming up to, as you mentioned, the Paris Agreement and the IPCC reports that came after that, you know, I can only imagine that you and your team were thinking long and hard about making the commitment once it became a target that could be approached. But was there a particular data point or an event that really convinced you that now's the time, that it is a realistic goal? Realistically, John, this was more an ongoing process. So step one was we'd acknowledged that climate change was an important investment issue and we needed to manage it. And then the question from that is how do we manage it? And then we formed the view that net zero 2050 was a useful construct to manage it as an investment issue. So the thinking really was that we think a net zero 2050 framing is actually a useful tool for us to manage climate risk. That's the logic, really. It was thinking that evolved over a period of time rather than it being a switch that was flicked per se. Sure, sure. And more of a a question that often sort of permeates all of these conversations is climate change. It's the challenge of our time. And that's largely because 
our prosperity, our lifestyles are demanding more and more energy. How optimistic are you that this can shift, that we can decouple our aspirations for prosperity from the need to burn fossil fuels? I'm actually an optimist, to be honest. So, I mean, the challenge is immense. Let's not downplay the size of the challenge. It is immense. But a couple of things actually make me optimistic. And the first one, I think, is the level of response that we're seeing. And in my case, in terms of what I'm most closely associated with and what I see, I see a very genuine response from both investors and companies. And again, that's not to belittle the size of the task that's still ahead, but I can see a lot of genuine effort going into responding to it. So that's point one that makes me optimistic. And point two, I think, is just the speed of the technology change. So I think, you know, when we look back through history, technology does change very quickly. I mean, we're constantly in a period of technology change. So I'm actually quite confident that the technologies are there and it's just a case of bringing them up to viability and cost competitiveness and so on. So, you know, I think the pathways are sort of starting to become evident, the technology pathways. And now it's just sort of making sure that the viability is there. So, yeah, so I am optimistic and I think that constructs such as Net Zero 2050 are really useful in this area because it does sort of focus the ask and the clarity of what needs to be achieved. But, yeah, without doubt, it's a massive challenge that we're all faced with. And, you know, each of us in our roles in this area really need to work harder, work faster, work urgently to respond to the challenge that's there. And to me, there was a real shift at some point where I recognised that climate change, you mentioned technology, this is an opportunity. This is an investable issue and, and not just sort of an ethical burden. You work at the coalface at this stuff and, and you see it all the time. Are there any specific technologies, companies that are really exciting, that are really speaking to you about how beating climate change is a great thing to invest into? The sector that's most obviously impacted, you know, is the energy sector. So, the transition away from fossil fuels and into renewables. That's a very obvious sector and that's not just about risk, it's about opportunity. So we're really focused on who are going to be the winners and make the most of that opportunity. The thing that I find interesting about climate change is it's such a broad area. You know, there's so many investment themes that can potentially come to it. You know, so energy was the obvious one. But also, you know, themes such as if you're a consumer-facing company, what is your customer going to expect of you? You know, what products and services can you be offering to appeal to customers that are interested in climate change and how a company is responding to that. So I think, you know, the other interesting piece in this is the consumer piece and what a companies need to do to position themselves. In some ways, it's a social licence issue. What do companies need to do to position themselves well and to maintain and enhance their social licence in an era where the custom is so focused on and aware of climate change and companies' responsibilities within that. And moving on from that concept of consumers and the social licence, how do your members feel about this? Is it their preferences or their demands that have driven your approach? How much does that influence you guys? We're very aware of our members' views on ESG issues. So one of the things that we do is a survey every two years. We ask members a range of sort of interesting questions around what is their views on our approach to responsible investment, you know, questions around what is their tolerance for responsible investment approaches versus trade-off in returns to the extent that there is one. And I'll come back to that because we don't think there is one. And, you know, across the fund, you know, what is their appetite for particular 
option. So we have what we call a socially aware option, for example, which actually has particular screens on it. And those screens are based on the member research telling us what are the issues of most concern to members. But um, at the end of the day, you know, the focus of our responsible investment or our ESG program at Australian Super is very much around this integration and stewardship piece, which is how can we integrate consideration of these issues in a way that maximises member investment returns? So we don't find that this issue around trade-off returns is a problem because we see it as activity that actually improves returns. Feedback that we get from members is, you know, very strong support for that as an approach to responsible investment. Members are very concerned, rightly so, about their investment returns. That is high priority for them. But they also do expect us to be a responsible investor. That's an expectation they have of us. But then thirdly, how we're operating in the responsible investment space where we're creating that alignment between returns and good company performance on ESG issues actually means that it brings those two together. That's the view we get from members is that they want us to be a responsible investor but that the approach that we have in terms of the integration and creating alignment with that and generating improved returns because we think good management of ESG issues at companies will make them better companies long-term, that brings it together and that's something that they're happy that we're doing. Great, great. Look, really appreciate all of these insights, Andrew. I've like many Australians, I take superannuation for granted, but as I dig deeper, we realise how much of a powerful force it is and it's great to see that, that Australian Super, one of the biggest operators in the country, is really leading on this stuff. So I appreciate all of that. But before I let you go, one final question, and that's to get a book recommendation off you. It doesn't have to be related to finance or sustainability. It could just be what's on your side table. But yeah, anything to offer to the listeners? Well, the book I liked actually was A Short History of Almost Everything. And I liked going back to sort of fundamentals and just sort of trace human history over time. So that was a nice reflection, I guess, on where sort of humanity had been and I guess really sort of showed how far we have come and it's a really good base to reflect on the challenges ahead and how far we need to keep moving to address the challenges that we have going forward. Definitely. All right, let's leave it there today, Andrew. Thank you very much. I'm sure there'll be lots of interesting announcements from Aussie Super, so feel free to come back on and tell us all about it. Yeah, that's great, John. I really appreciated the time and you know, thanks for the great questions and the good discussion. Really appreciate it. All right. All the best, Andrew. Thanks, John. 